I was driving around with my girls this week, listening to the news, as we always do when I'm driving the van, uh, much to their dismay. But we were driving around listening to the news, and all of a sudden, we'd been driving for about 10 minutes. All of a sudden, one of my girls asked me from the middle row, she's like, Dad, how come there's so many sad stories on the radio? I turned down the radio. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we've been listening to the news the whole time since we left home, and I haven't heard one good story. I've only heard sad stories. They're all about, you know, somebody who was sick or somebody who died or somebody who got arrested or somebody, you know, a, a bomb that went off. They're all just really awful stories. And I just wonder why the only stories that the news tells are really terrible stories. And I was kind of taken back by the question. I had no idea how to answer. I was like, oh, well... I don't know, human beings just have this insatiable appetite for bad news. It's not good for us, but we just, people prefer terrible stories. We find them more interesting and something. And I just kind of the, kind of bluffed my way through it and the conversation changed. But I got really interested about the question, why is it that the news is so filled with, with bad news, with terrible stories? So I did some research and I actually found an article in the Information Economics and Policy Journal. I know you've got yours, it's sitting on the nightside table, you just haven't gotten to it yet, but it's last April's issue, for Pete's sakes, you know, read it. Um, but the, the Information Economics and Policy issue, uh, Journal, there was this article in there about some research that was done. It was basically a bunch of mathematical modeling that was all rooted in what they call the Law of Diminishing Marginal Utility. It's a really depressing law uh, but the law of diminishing marginal utility says that you gain less benefit from a positive experience each successive time that you have it. So um, every next dollar you earn means less to you than the one you just earned. Or to put it uh, maybe in a way that's more relatable, you enjoy each successive slice of pizza less. Right? So by the time you've had your seventh slice of pizza, you're not even enjoying yourself anymore. Right? Like That's the law of diminishing marginal utility. And basically what these researchers say is that when you listen to good news stories, you get a diminishing usefulness out of hearing the good news stories. But because of our evolutionary adaptiveness, listening to bad news stories trains us how to survive. Right? Like you gain a benefit from listening to bad news stories in terms of how it trains you to be more responsive to potential danger all around you. So, I mean, consider this example. You live in California and you surf uh, every evening, but in one particular summer, there are seven stories in the news of shark attacks on your beach. That's going to change the way you surf, right? It makes you more fit to survive. And they said this, this, their theory was, this is why human beings have such an insatiable appetite for bad news. It makes us more fit to survive. What I found interesting about the research, other than the research itself, which I found interesting, but what I found interesting was this idea underlying the research that sometimes the bad news is the good news. That sometimes bad news can actually be good news. And it was a profound realization for me and one that I think, if we actually embrace it, can change the way that we follow Jesus. If you haven't been around for the last few years, we have periodically, in and out, been studying the life story of Jesus. We've been following through a biography written about Jesus by one of his good friends, one of his disciples, a guy that lived with him basically 24-7 for about three years by, by the name of Matthew. And 
And we've seen over the last few years, Matthew paint pictures of, of Jesus that have been very compelling. The power and authority of Jesus' teaching. Right? The way he describes what it looks like to live rightly with God and to live rightly with yourself and to live rightly with the people around you and li- rightly with the world. Matthew's described really compellingly the power and authority of Jesus' works, of his deeds, of his life. How he's able to bring healing into the brokenness. He's able to bring order into the chaos. He's able to set people free who are trapped in darkness. He's able to bring forgiveness to those who are grappling with guilt. And, and Matthew's described kind of the, the mixed bag of response that has come to Jesus through the course of his public life. There are some people who are really excited about Jesus and they think that he's a prophet that God has sent to Israel to guide them into the future. But there are other people who, who treat Jesus more as a curiosity kind of a circus sideshow. They watch him from the side more for entertainment value than anything else. There are some who are skeptics, who are doubters, who have, who have serious questions about Jesus' legitimacy. And there are some who just downright hate him because he doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't follow any of the patterns of what religious people are supposed to say and what religious people are supposed to do and the kind of people religious folks are supposed to hang around with Jesus. Just, he just breaks all the molds and they hate that about Jesus because he's detracting from what they're all about. But eventually in Matthew chapter 16, in a passage we looked at back in February, Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 15, Matthew 16, 15, he says, but what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah is a, comes out of a Hebrew word that just means king. And the Messiah was what most of the Jews in the first century were actually waiting for. They were waiting for God to send to Israel the king that he had picked and anointed who would become over Israel a king like the world had never seen before. The Messiah, they expected, was going to be a king who would rule over Israel with the wisdom and the power of God, who would provide for Israel all of the good things of God and who would usher in for Israel a universal and never-ending golden age of human flourishing, of healing and harmony and abundance and justice and peace. The, the Messiah the Jews expected was going to lead Israel with military might into Jerusalem and he was going to drive out the oppressive Roman army, set Israel free from the Roman Empire and actually establish Israel as the single global superpower who would rule the known world with an eternal dynasty. This was the Messiah, the way he was understood in first century Israel. And in Matthew 16, Peter looks at Jesus and says, I know exactly who you are. You are the Messiah that God has sent into the world. And Jesus' response to Peter is really positive. He says, you know, way to go, Peter. He says, there's no way you figured that out on your own. God revealed that to you and on people like you who confess that I am the Messiah, I'm going to build this new kind of society, this incredible thing called the church, and it's going to be an unstoppable force for good in the world. And then he says this really interesting thing in verse 20, something we didn't read back in February. Then it says he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Okay, way to go, Peter. You figured it out now. Zip. Right? Just a Don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. What's that all about? Right? I don't know if you share 
with me, this unhealthy obsession with American politics, but especially in 2016, like I'm watching things happen south of the border and it's fascinating to me because that's how what's happening south of the border. This is what you do when you think that you're a leader who has the capacity to shape human destiny for your nation or even beyond for the world. What you do is you campaign. Right? You get your face out there, you get your name out there, you get your message out there, you get yourself known in order to rally a, a kind of a critical mass of support that's going to carry you all the way to leadership. This is how it works, and this is what you would think Jesus would be all about if he's the one, if he's the Messiah who's come to take leadership in Israel, that he'd be out there campaigning and trying to guide, you know, create this critical mass of support, but instead Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And the reason he says don't tell anyone is because Peter and the disciples and everyone really have exactly the wrong idea about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And actually Jesus starting at this point begins a kind of Messiah re-education program trying to get them to unlearn everything they think that Messiah Means It says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that as Messiah, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life, what we just celebrated seven days ago. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, the way they thought about Messiah is pretty much exactly the way that we think about superheroes. Right When darkness is descending on the city and chaos is threatening to break out when the city is in the hands and the grip of, of evil, in swoops a superhero. Maybe not Batman versus Superman, maybe a real superhero like Spider-Man, but, but in comes the superhero and he kicks butt and he takes names and he drives the power of evil out of the city and he restores everything to the way it's supposed to be. And this is exactly the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. They thought that when the Messiah came, what the Messiah was going to do is going to ride in on a white horse, leading a gigantic revolutionary army into Jerusalem. They were going to kick the Roman army's butts, drive them out, and establish the kingdom of Israel over the entire known world and usher in this universal, eternal era of human and, and creational flourishing in the world. They thought that this is exactly what the Messiah was going to do. And what Jesus needed to communicate, the reason he said... Don't tell everybody because you have the wrong idea. What Jesus means to say is, that's not the way it looks when God shows up to save the world. When God, Jesus says, when God shows up to save the world, he doesn't come as a conquering hero. He comes as a suffering servant. When God shows up to save the world, he doesn't come as a king. He comes as a carpenter from backwater nowhere. When God shows up to save the world, he comes not in power and strength, he comes in weakness. 
and humility. When God shows up to save the world, he comes not with the glory of victory, but with the agony of apparent defeat. When God shows up to save the world, it doesn't look like revolution. It looks like Easter. The gruesome death of an apparently failed revolutionary who was executed by his enemies that he failed to overthrow. Only to be, you know, resurrected supposedly from the dead three days later without pomp or circumstance or fanfare or evidence for that matter so that it could be widely disbelieved and has been throughout all of human history in the wake of which um, nothing really seems to change. To the casual observer, the world continues to roll exactly the way that it was before. The forces of darkness are not vanquished. Evil is not driven out of the world. Everything is not restored to the way it's supposed to be. There is no universal era of healing and um, healing and hope and abundance and justice and peace. The world apparently continues to roll exactly as it did before and you just have to listen to the news with my seven-year-old daughter to realize that that's true. And what Jesus needed the disciples to understand is that when God shows up to save the world, it doesn't look anything like what they thought it was going to look like. And the reason that we need to hear that message too is because I think that there are many of us who are exactly like many of them. There are many of us who are doing battle with darkness in our lives every day with a diagnosis that doesn't look too good, with a financial situation that doesn't seem to have a solution, with relationships that leave us desperate or desperately lonely, with kids that are going off the rails, with inner battles emotionally or mentally, battles with addiction. We, there, there are many of us pretty well all of us for whom at least some part of our life isn't going the way life is supposed to go, where at least in some part of our world, the world isn't the way the world is supposed to be. And we've put our faith in Jesus, if we're totally honest with ourselves, we put our faith in Jesus at least in part because we're expecting him to ride in on a white horse and to kick butt and to take names and to rescue us from the darkness and to fix what's wrong with the world. And if we were really honest, we would say that some of us are tired of waiting for the white horse. That some of us have grown disillusioned and disappointed with Jesus. Wondering why he hasn't shown up to fix the stuff that's going wrong in our lives, especially since we've been so faithful And I've been there. I've said to my wife, how much do we have to do before God is going to give us a baby? I get it. I want to say this really delicately because I know that there are people who show up every single week who are carrying stuff that's heavy and hard and painful and tiring and you're just tired of carrying this load. You're tired of waiting for Jesus to show up and fix it. And I don't want you to hear me say that God doesn't care or he doesn't know about your pain. He does. There is a verse in the Psalms that Krista and I will remind each other of often. 
when we're in those dark periods of our life. And the verse says that God catches all of our tears in a bottle, that he records all of our pain in his scroll, that God is aware, he knows, and he cares about your pain. And yet for reasons I don't understand and for reasons I can't explain, God has decided that the best way to deal with the brokenness and darkness and pain of our world and of our lives is not to, for, to miraculously lift us out of it. God has decided that the best way to deal with it is for him to compassionately enter with us into it. Jesus showing up in the world. To die on the cross and to be raised from the dead three days later is Jesus entering into our pain with us. Wrapping his arms around the pain and the hurt and the brokenness and the darkness that pervades our world. And carrying it all the way to the cross to defeat it from the inside. To diffuse it by embracing it. To disarm its power. So that sin, pain, brokenness, and darkness no longer have the last word on what happens in our world. You see, this is the thing about Easter. The way Jesus defeats the power of darkness and death is not by running away from it, going around it, or rising above it. The way Jesus defeats the power of darkness and death is by embracing it and going through it. Until he experiences resurrection on the other side. And when God shows up to save the world, it looks like Jesus. And Jesus invites us to follow him. Not away from our pain, around from the pain, or over top of our pain. But to follow him through the pain. That we might experience resurrection life on the other side. And it doesn't make sense to me why this is how God would choose to deal with things. I'm with Peter. I'd say this isn't how it's supposed to be. But Jesus said to Peter, you're only thinking about things from a human perspective. You're not seeing things from God's perspective. And a part of putting your faith in Jesus is trusting that Jesus knows what he's doing when he says, follow me through the pain. Because follow me is exactly the invitation that Jesus issues. In verse 24, it says, Then Jesus says to his disciple, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus says, If you're going to be a part of what I'm about in the world, you're going to have to learn how to do what I did. And that is take up your cross and follow me. In fact, what Jesus says, first of all, is that Jesus says you're suppo- you have to deny yourself. I don't like that translation, deny yourself. It sounds like what you do on a diet, right? When you're trying to say no to the second dessert, no, I'm denying myself. Um, it's actually quite a bit more um, powerful, that phrase in the Greek language than that. It actually means to disown yourself which is really quite an ugly thing if you think about it. If you think about what it means to disown somebody, really what you're saying to somebody when you disown them is you're saying you're no longer a factor in my world. You, as far as I'm concerned, you don't even exist 
anymore. You're no longer a consideration when I think about what's going to happen in my life. When I roll out of bed in the morning and I decide what I'm going to be about today, I don't think about you at all. That's what it means to disown somebody. You now bear zero influence on the way I'm going to live my life. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, that's the attitude you have to have towards yourself. Somebody once said, humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking about yourself at all. Jesus says the life of discipleship is the life of not thinking about yourself at all, which means that we have to let go of all of the plans that we have for ourselves. All of the plans to get that education, all the plans to get that career, all of the plans to get married, all the plans to have kids, all the plans to be popular, all the plans that we have to be successful, all of whatever the plans are, whatever the agenda is, when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to disown yourself. You've got to make your own life, your own agenda, your own plans. You have to make those things a non-factor, a non-entity in determining how you're going to live your life. That means that what we got to do is take all of our plans that we have for ourselves and actually open our hands and let them go and then with open hands turn around and pick up a cross and follow Jesus to pick up the cross is to do what Jesus did which is to choose the path of self-giving love So that somebody else can experience the self-giving love of God through you. That's what Jesus did. That's what the cross meant to Jesus. It is Jesus voluntarily choosing to give up himself so that other people could experience the self-giving love of God. It is Jesus choosing to die so that other people like you and me could experience what it means to live. And Jesus says if you're going to Be my disciple. The choice is to stop living for all of this stuff, to let that stuff go, to disown yourself, and to pick up a cross and every single moment of every single day, choose the path of self-giving, self-sacrificing love so that someone else can experience the self-sacrificing love of God through you. It's choosing to die a little every day so that someone else can know what it's like to really live. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that the invitation of Jesus is come and die. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, disown yourself, pick up the cross, And follow him down the path of self-giving love. Dying just a little bit so that someone else can experience what it means to really live. That's the bad news of what it means to follow Jesus. That your life gets harder because you've chosen to follow him. I mean, we in the church, we, we... in North America especially, do a great job of telling people all the ways in which their life's going to get better if they follow Jesus. Your marriage will be better. Your kids will be better. You'll be more emotionally stable. You'll be happier. You'll be more successful at work. You should give your life to Jesus because your life will be better. That is true. Your life will be better, but it won't be easier. It'll be harder. 
in part because you still live as a part of the world. This is a world that is filled with pain. Pain is a part of the human condition. And you don't leave the world just because you became a Christian. Jesus doesn't lift you out of it. You still get to experience the same broken, warped pain and darkness that everybody else experiences in the world. But in some ways it gets worse because the Bible says that God has an enemy in the world. The forces of darkness hate the fact that God is trying to fill creation with the goodness, truth, and beauty of his love. And the enemy hates anyone that is partnering with God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to be a part of spreading the love of God through the world. And he hates you enough to hurt you. It's harder in part because it's choosing the way of persecution. When you choose the path of self-sacrificing love instead of pursuing your own agenda, you are cutting across the grain of everything that North America stands for. You're cutting across the grain of somebody else's agenda and they're going to hate you for it. Now fortunately for us, I think, we don't experience as much pain as we may other people, other Christians in other parts of the world much more than we and we ought to be praying for them. But there will be people who hate you because you choose to follow Jesus. It it gets harder in part because even if you're not experiencing pain, if you're not being attacked by the enemy, even if you're not being persecuted by other people, you are making the daily moment-by-moment choice to pick up the cross and live a life of self-sacrificing love, of dying so that somebody else can experience what it means to really live. That's the bad news. But sometimes, and here's the rub, sometimes the bad news is actually the good news. In verse 25, Jesus says this, for, okay, I'm going to give you the rationale, the basis for choosing this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That word life is the Greek word suke. Sometimes it's translated soul. Like it is in the very next verse. I don't understand why we translate the same word with two different words, two verses side by side. But suke means soul. We get our English word psychology, the science of the soul. But the best way to translate suke is with the word self. This is Jesus talking about your true, real, authentic self. The self you were created to be. The self God wants you to be. And Jesus says... The reason you choose to disown yourself and to let go of all your plans and agendas in order to pick up a cross and live a life of self-sacrificing love is it's because when you choose that path, that's where you find yourself. The true self, the self that you always wanted to be. See, we live with this illusion that if we were to somehow capture all of this stuff, The dream, right? The job, the education, the success, the wife, the 2.5 kids, the dog, and the white picket fence. If we could live the dream, then we'd find ourselves and we'd finally be the selves that we always wanted to be. And Jesus says it's nonsense. In pursuing all of this stuff, you end up losing yourself. It's only in disowning this kind of lifestyle where that's the agenda. I mean, don't hear me. That's all good stuff. And if God wants to give it to you, God bless you. Um, but we don't live for it. If Disowning this stuff and living the way of the cross, Jesus says, that's the only real way that you'll find yourself. That you'll actually become the true, authentic, real, fully alive version of the person God has created you to be. He gives us this thought experiment. Verse 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their suke, their selves? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their suke? Jesus says, imagine this. Imagine you live for this stuff, all the dreams. You're living the dream. 
right? And you actually achieve it. You're actually able to accomplish everything you set out to accomplish because this is what you think is going to give you real life. Jesus says, if you accomplish all of that, but you lose yourself along the way, will you still say that it's worth it? Will you think at the end of the day that that was a fair trade? That you lost yourself to get all of this? Because the more you pursue this stuff, the less and less you look like Jesus. What it means for us to be our true selves, the people God's created us to be, is to live in the image of God, is to live in the image of Jesus. And the more we live for ourselves, the more we live to pursue our own passions and dreams and agendas, the less and less we look like Jesus. But the more we choose to disown ourselves, to open our hands and let go of all of our plans and agendas and hopes and dreams, and instead use our open hands to pick up that cross and to live a life where we choose to die a little so that somebody else could experience real life, where we choose the path of self-giving love so that someone else can experience the self-giving love of God through us. The more we choose that, the more we become the truest, fullest, most authentic version of the people God has created us to be, the more we become ourselves. And that, Jesus says, is something you will never regret for all of eternity. In verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus says, don't forget, I am coming back one day. And when I come back, it won't be as a suffering servant to die on a cross like I did the first time. When I come back the second time, it's going to be as a conquering king who is going to implement the fullest version of the kingdom of God, who is going to usher in a universal and eternal era of human and creational flourishing, of healing and harmony and abundance and justice and peace that will last for all of eternity. Jesus says, when I come, I'm going to root out of creation all of the darkness and the, and the evil and the twistedness. I'm going to unbend creation. I'm going to eliminate the death and the tears and the mourning and the crying and the pain. All of that is going to be removed from creation. And in that day when I come and I recreate the world and I recreate humanity and I make the world the place that I always intended it to be and I finally do all of the fixing of the wrongs that everybody's been waiting for me to do in that day, Jesus says, I will reward those who made the choice to follow me. The word reward actually means I will pay back in full everything that you let go of. All the plans and the agendas all of the hopes and the dreams that you opened your hands and surrendered to me so that you could pick up your cross and day by day live a life of self-giving love so that someone else can experience the self-giving love of God through you. Everything that you gave up, I will repay you in full and then some. You will never regret, Jesus says. Choosing the way of Jesus, which is the way of suffering, 
which is the way of disowning yourself to pick up a cross and follow him. And Jesus says, for all of eternity, you will never regret making that choice. I wonder what parts of your life you've been reluctant to open your hands and give to him in order to pick up your cross and follow him. I wonder what choices you've made as I have to make the carrying the cross a little more comfortable, a little easier than what Jesus has called us to. And maybe today is the moment for you to say, Jesus, you can have all of me. Let's pray. Father, there's nothing about our culture, there's nothing about our upbringing, there's nothing about our lives and our humanity that has trained us to embrace choosing a way of suffering. For that we need you. We need you to fill us with your spirit, to empower and to energize us with the vision and the conviction to disown ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow you. We repent all of the stuff that we've held in our tight little fists, all of the dreams that we've been unwilling to get up, give up. We open our hands and we let them go to you. Would you teach us what it looks like to walk in the way of self-giving love every moment of every day so that we could be people who choose to die a little so that other people can experience what it's like to really live in you through Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray.